You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. invite you this morning. We're going to kind of just stand together, and uh, we do this sometimes, haven't done this for a while, and we're just going to kind of uh, start this morning. It, it, do you have that? or Okay, there it is. Let's just go ahead, and uh, we're going to just uh, read this together. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we proclaim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. You may be seated. If you've never ever read 1 John chapter 1, you just did. That's 10 verses there, and that's 1 John chapter 1. We started looking at this last week, and 1 John, you know, is again described by scholars and historians as kind of a pastoral letter that was written to multiple churches by John, one of the original disciples of Jesus. Now to me, what is interesting about this is the way that John started this particular letter that we just read here together, and then you kind of take that and lay it side by side when you look at John's gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. When you look at that um, and you see how John begins the gospel of John and just compare that to the way he begins First John there. Now it's interesting because Matthew begins his gospel by listing the genealogy of Jesus. Mark and Luke both kind of uh, come at their opening statements in their Gospels looking at the birth of Jesus from kind of some differing perspectives. 
John's gospel is unique in that it kind of begins a lot like the way it begins there in 1 John. John chapter 1 begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. This was the true light coming into the world enlightens every person. I want to just stop there for a moment. What John is saying there is that this light, this life that has come among us in Jesus enlightens every person. Every one of us in here have received, we have been given light. To be able to see, to be able to know God, uh, to be able to receive all that he has for us. There is not a person on the face of this earth that has ever lived, that's living today, that will live in the future. There is no one to whom this light has not been given in some measure. Every person. Part of our job is to do whatever we can do to just encourage, to stoke, uh, to, to speak into, to do whatever we can do to cause the life that has been given to every person to get brighter and brighter. And, and, and so again, it, it enlightens every person. So I, I'm talking to a room full of people who have been enlightened here this morning. And again, we, we, we may have varying degrees of enlightenment here this morning. And, and again, some of that is just partially our response to, to what God is doing, what God is offering, what God is revealing. When, when we respond to that, God gives more. And so every one of you here this morning are enlightened. That's the great news. And then he jumps down in John 1:14, and the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And this is Jesus, full of grace and truth. And, and so again, as you lay those two beginnings of, of, God, of John's gospel and 1 John chapter one, you just see so many common phrases and ideas that John begins with there. And all of it is focusing on the very unique and beautiful revelation of Jesus Christ. Because as I said last week, the most important question you'll ever be asked, the most important question you'll ever answer in your life is who is Jesus Christ? And since the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that question has been debated in every generation. It was even a question Jesus once asked his disciples in Matthew 16. It says there, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? 
And Simon Peter answered, and he said, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And I love Jesus' response. He says, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now, like Peter, every one of us has to answer that question. Who do you say Jesus is? And like Peter, for any of us to answer like he did, if you were to say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, I believe he is the Messiah, it's because God the Father has revealed that truth to your heart. See, God gives us the revelation. This is part of that enlightened, that, that light that God gives every person. God gives us revelation, and we respond to that revelation through faith, trusting in what he says, that what he says is true, and the result of that is we become children of God. So there came a day where, where I received revelation that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. I was given that revelation, and my faith responded to that revelation and said, this is who Jesus is. I believe this is who Jesus is. I believe this is who you have revealed him to be to me. I just responded by faith, and in that, I was born again. But it takes God working in the human heart. I cannot reveal the truth of who Jesus is. And neither can any other human being. Only God the Father can reveal that truth to our hearts about who Jesus is. And we either accept or we reject that revelation, that light. Now I can preach and I can teach what the Bible says about who Jesus is and God does and he will use that to give revelation, to bring light, but it takes God the Father working in the human heart to reveal the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And again, when we simply unite our faith, we attach our faith to that revelation of who God is, in that moment, we then become sons and daughters of God. And again, that's why the debate rages. For every generation, because there are a lot of people out there that do not know the truth concerning Jesus Christ because they have not received or they have not um, uh, taken that revelation that God's given them and responded. They've rejected that and, and they've kind of gone with their own belief, their own understanding of who Jesus is. And then these false prophets, they go out and, and they begin uh, false teachings and they're misleading many, many people. And this is happening uh, in, in churches all across the world today, just as it was happening in the churches there that John is writing this uh, gospel to. And we talked about that last week. Now, growing up in the Lutheran church, if any of you grew up in the Lutheran church, attended confirmation classes uh, every Sunday, 
we either said the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. We would stand like we did here and we would recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Now to be honest with you, at that time in the Lutheran Church, I did not really understand nor did I really appreciate either one uh, because I really didn't quite get what their need or their purpose was. As a matter of fact, in our confirmation class, for us to be confirmed, we had to memorize the Apostles' Creed. And I, I still can say that, um, you know, I think pretty much mostly by memory. I'm 60, so you gotta get, give me a little bit of a break there, right? Uh, but I can pretty much recite most of the Apostles' Creed by heart. So I, I wanna just kind of look really, really quickly at the Apostles' Creed. And it just simply says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator or maker of heaven and earth. So there it kind of identifies the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. Then it goes on and says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, thereby identifying the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And it says, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, I'm gonna come back to that in a second. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. That is the most controversial part of the Apostles' Creed. There are many people out there that do not believe that Jesus descended into hell. There are people out there that use the text that you know Jesus descended into the uttermost parts of the earth to preach captivity to the captives. Now some Bible scholars, some theologians take that scripture verse and, and they, they think that that means uh, that Jesus descended into hell and, and preached to captives there uh, in hell. I'm not gonna take a position on that. I'm just telling you that why that is the most controversial part um, of the Apostles' Creed. We know that when Jesus died, we know that his body died, his spirit, his soul was very much alive, and I believe Jesus did things during those three days that his body uh, was, was dead. Now, we don't know the full extent of that, we just know Jesus was doing things those three days. He wasn't just dormant, he was doing things, and so the scripture says one of those things was that he descended to the uttermost parts of the earth and he preached captivity to the captives. Now again, we don't know what that fully all means, we just know that's part of what he was doing. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And again, it's mostly really key to understand who is the judge. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is the one that's coming to judge. A lot of fear that we have about God is that God's going to be the judge, that God the Father. Not at all. It says, scripture says that he gave that to the Son. The Son will be the one uh, who will uh, judge. And it goes on and says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Catholic Church, that's the most misunderstood part of this. I, I you know, remember growing up and as I'm learning this, I'm like, why are we pledging allegiance to the Catholic Church? We're not Catholics. I mean, it was, it was a very, very misunderstood part of it. I didn't know until much later in life that that word Catholic, uh, it, the word is also universal. I believe in the Catholic, I believe in the universal church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting, amen. Now, the Apostles' Creed is named this not because the apostles actually wrote this as, as early historians thought, but rather it is a brief 
summary of what the apostles preached and taught. The Apostles' Creed is kind of a simplified, um, you know, kind of a, just a, um, a, the high points, the main points, the important points of faith that concisely articulates the beliefs of the Christian faith. Don Carson said it like this of the Apostles' Creed. He said it very ably summarizes the gospel itself in just a few sentences, and that it does. The Apostles' Creed was very, very helpful because oftentimes what we lose sight of is the early church had no written or agreed upon creeds of exactly what the Christian church believed. And so that would maybe vary from church to church, from city to city, from believer to believer. So the Apostles' Creed was the first creed that really kind of took and said, here's what the big major points that we would agree upon as to what the Bible teaches. And uh, the early church consistently, you know, what they taught there uh, is basically found there in the Apostles' Creed. And it really wasn't until heresies and, and divisions started invading the church that any kind of creeds were necessary or helpful. As a matter of fact, Bible scholars and historians believe the Apostles' Creed appears to have been written in part to kind of uh, to refute the teaching of Gnosticism, which we kind of talked about at great lengths last week. So for example, the Creed states that Jesus Christ was born, suffered, and died upon the cross. Now again, that statement in and of itself goes completely against the teaching of Gnosticism, which taught that only Christ appeared to have a physical body. He was really just a spiritual being, but he was a spiritual being in such a way that if you were to look at him, you would be convinced he had a physical human body, but he really didn't. That was kind of one of the teachings of Gnosticism. As I stated last week, this may be why uh, John makes the statement he makes there in the very, very beginning. I mean, at the, uh, at the opening statement of 1 John is, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes, and we touched him with our own hands. Again, it, it seems like a weird statement to make um, until you kind of really understand the background, what's kind of happening there in the churches at that time, because there were a lot of false prophets, false teachers out there telling people he didn't really have a physical body. And John's uh, refuting that, and he's saying, no, no, I can tell you he had a physical body. I touched him with my own hands, as did many of the other disciples. So John is, is refuting uh, this Gnostic belief in this statement. Now, as I stated last week, these Gnostic beliefs and teachings, they were infiltrating, they were impacting the church, uh, the New Testament church, and many people were being led astray by these false teachers, these false prophets, and they're being led out of these New Testament churches. And we talked about this last week. If you could just begin to chip away at the foundation of people's beliefs, such as, you know, Jesus didn't really have a physical body, but just a spiritual one, that people would begin to question other biblical truths as well. For example, I said, you know, if Jesus didn't have a physical body, and, 
if he didn't have a physical body, then how could he be physically present on the cross? How could he die upon the cross? And if Jesus didn't really die physically on the cross, was his blood really shed? And if his blood really wasn't shed, is there really forgiveness or atonement for sin? So again, you begin to see where how if you can begin to chip away to question one belief, it kind of starts impacting and it just kind of starts this domino effect that it begins to cause you to question and to doubt other beliefs as well. And, and again, you know, if he didn't you know, physically die on the cross, did he really physically resurrect from the dead? How could he? So again, you begin to see how this was causing people to be led astray, to begin to question their faith in who Jesus Christ was. And so John is writing this letter in part to kind of refute some of what was being taught there by these false prophets. Now again, listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1.22. He says, yet now God the Father has reconciled you to himself through the death of of Christ in his physical body. Now again, John's not just, you know, picking words. He's very intentional here because just as John was confronting this Gnostic teaching, I'm sure that there were Gnostics uh, in, in Paul's day, in the churches and the areas that Paul was ministering, he's probably confronting the same doctrine. And, and so he kind of says there that he talks about the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, now as a result of what? His physical death in his body. As a result of that, he says, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Somebody say amen. Amen, that's who we are. And again, that is all done because of the physical death of Christ upon the cross. Now again, think of the theological, the spiritual impact that this would have if Christ did not experience physical death in his body. Are you really holy and blameless and stand before him without a single fault? And again, this is what the teaching of the false prophets was really designed to do to chip away at the foundations of your faith, getting you to question everything the Bible says, and then to only believe what they say. And again, this is why the creeds were established and, and were so important. And the Apostles' Creed was so crucial because it served as a reminder to the, the, the New Testament churches to the early Christians, the fundamentals of the faith. And they served as an anchor that would help to keep people grounded in the most important truths of the Bible and to correct any heresies that were sure to pop up. Let me just go back and, and, and just say, uh, uh, I remember when Janie and I were in seminary one time, there was a German philosopher who came to teach at the seminary, and I remember his name, his name was Wolfhart Pannenberg. 
And he was just this great German scholar. I mean, I think we had to uh, read one of his books. Um, so he was a very, very well known and there was just all this anticipation and, and this hubbub that, that Wolfhart Pannenberg was coming to our seminary and he was gonna teach. And I mean, there was just a buzz about this guy coming. And I'll never, ever forget sitting in the chapel and hearing him talk about how he did not believe in the virgin birth of Christ. I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. When he said that, I was done. I, and I'm, I'm not someone that always believes in throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But to me, that is one of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Because to me, when you start thinking about, okay, if he wasn't born of a virgin, what are the implications of that? I mean, you can figure out on your own what some of the implications of that was. One of the biggest implications to me is the Bible isn't true. The Bible can't be trusted. Because Isaiah said he would be born of a virgin, and Luke, I mean, when you stop and think about Luke, I mean, you know, Luke's gospel, I mean, he wasn't a disciple of Jesus. I don't believe he ever met Jesus. He was a, a, a Greek Gentile. Interestingly, he's the only Greek who wrote anything in, in the New Testament. But Luke was a doctor. And so what Luke did in comprising the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts was he basically just went out and interviewed the people who were there at that time. And so one of the things that you'll find in the Gospel of Luke is probably one of the most moving, the most beautiful um, um, stories on the birth of Jesus Christ. And, and so what did Luke do? Luke went, he wasn't there, but he goes to the mother of Mary, who was alive at that time. And Luke just simply says, tell me about the birth of Jesus. And he records it, and that, that's what Luke is. It's, it's a recorded version of the historical accounts of the people he interviewed. And you see Mary's description there. She very, very clearly makes this point there that she's a virgin. How can this be? I've, I've never known a man. So for me, to, to, to go with, with Wolfhart Pannenberg and deny the virgin birth of Christ, then, okay, Luke's gospel can't fully be trusted. Mary can't be trusted. So you begin to kind of see all the things that kind of just start being, and so for me, that's why I say the Apostles' Creed, we're not a creedal church, but, but I believe that the Apostles' Creed serves a purpose to make sure that the main teachings of the gospel remain the main teachings of the gospel, not to water that down um, uh, at all. Now, the Nicene Creed had much the same purpose as the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed was a result of what they called the Council of Nicaea in 325 uh, AD. It's about 300 years after the death of Christ. And the Nicene Creed, like the Apostles' Creed, uh, again, it emphasizes the, the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal. And it was also done to refute and to come against the teachings of a man named Arius. 
He was a very, very prominent scholar and teacher. He was a very influential clergyman at that time, and he was teaching that Christ was not divine. He denied that the Son of God uh, is the same uh, as God the Father. According to Arius, the Son is not eternal. He does not have the same substance as the Father, but he said he was created, therefore making him a creature. Now, uh, that is why when you read the Nicene Creed, there is so much emphasis placed upon the second person of the Trinity, more so than what you see in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed is kind of like saying, okay, we're really gonna unpack the nature and the identity of Jesus Christ. Now just listen to this section of the Nicene Creed as it relates to the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, this just, to me, I feel God breathing on this when I read this. I, I mean, this is just powerful. He says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, and that's the, that's the uh, word monogenes there uh, in, in the Greek, one um, being one, uh, one identity, so that's, that's that word, begotten, one, one identity, one substance, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us in our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. Again, they emphasize uh, that. And he became truly human. For our sakes, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scripture. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. And again, you, you see a lot more detail is given here regarding the divine nature of Jesus Christ than what you see in the Apostles' Creed, uh, uh, again, due to the teachings, the very prominent teachings of Arius at that time. And again, you begin to see that the function of both of those creeds as they're both very, very important, each one accomplishing a very specific purpose. So I always um, go back to, uh, I, I always uh, um, have copies of the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, because again, it's, it's, a, it's like that North Star. It's, it's the anchor. It's part of what keeps the church from getting into heresies. If anything begins to infiltrate or come into the church that goes against this, I I know that is not right. I'm able to put that up against the Nicene, the Apostle Creed, and say that is not biblical. That is, that is uh, uh, false teachings. Those are false prophets. So to me, these creeds are just as important now as they were the days that they were written because, again, they both set forth a very simple, a very straightforward summary of not only what the Bible teaches, but also the essentials of the Christian faith that churches and denominations have relied on for generations. It helps keep the church on a solid biblical foundation as well as keeping us safe and insulated from false prophets and false teachings. Now, let me just kind of bring uh, 1 John uh, chapter 1 to a close. John begins to address another 
very strange teaching that was found among the Gnostics. And that was the claim that not only is there this blazing, this pure, this brilliant light in God, they acknowledged that, but they said there's also kind of this very deep, deep darkness in God, and they believed that it was the responsibility of the Gnostics to walk both in this bright, this brilliant light of God and to also walk in and to embrace the darkness of God. And again, the ramifications of this belief was it's all right to sin. As a matter of fact, as a Gnostic, we're obligated to sin to some degree in order to experience the deep darkness that was alleged to be in God. So not only do we want to experience and walk in the light, we want to experience and walk in the darkness of God. And, and to a Gnostic, both of those were important. And it may be in part why Paul kind of says in Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with with the Holy Spirit. So again, he's advocating, again, against that darkness of drunkenness, and he's advocating the light of walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So to the Gnostics, to fully know, to fully experience God was to walk in this bright, brilliant, blazing light, and also to walk in this deep, darkness that was found in God. And so this is why I believe, in part, John responds to these belief there in 1 John 1, 5, he says, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, and again, you think of all the messages that they could have proclaimed at, at this point. I mean, Jesus taught a lot, but look at what they, look at what John kind of highlights here. He says, declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying and you are lying if we say we have fellowship with God and we go on living or experiencing that spiritual darkness that we proclaim is in God. If we say we have fellowship with God but we go on living in spiritual darkness, we're not practicing the truth. But if we're living in the light as God is in the light, that we have fellowship with each other in the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Now again, see, when you begin to understand what the Gnostics were teaching and preaching, what was trying to infiltrate and influence the early believers in the early church, this begins to make sense why John's writing what he writes here. He's, he's addressing very specific things that were happening in the church. These Gnostic beliefs just built on each other and one led to another uh, to greater spiritual heresy. As a matter of fact, the Gnostics believed that they could eventually attain to a spiritual plane where it was no longer possible for them to sin. Okay, they believed once they were able to kind of separate the human body, which they believed is evil because, you know, all matter is evil. Our bodies are made up of matter. Therefore, the flesh is evil. Our spirits, you know, are from God. They are, they are good. They have the potential to be good. And the aim, the goal, and the life of a Gnostic was to separate the evil human flesh from the, the good spirit, okay? So they believed that they could actually separate enough. They could get to 
a point where they just believed it was impossible for them to sin, that they were beyond sin and that they had kind of reached this state of what they described spiritual perfection. Now, there's a similar belief that really has kind of found its way uh, into the evangelical churches today, and that is the belief that once you become born again, it's impossible for you to sin. I've, I've heard this come out of people's mouths. They said, since, you know, since I'm born again, it's impossible for me to sin, and because it's impossible for me to sin, there's nothing to confess. So I don't need to repent. And the blood of Jesus is no longer necessary. I mean, again, just play that out to its logical conclusion. If you don't sin, you probably don't need a savior. And Pastor Bruce kind of pointed out a couple of weeks ago. He said, we all need Jesus to be both Lord and Savior of our lives. You needed Jesus to be Savior of your past. You need Jesus to be Savior of your present life today. Every one of us in this room, me chief of all, need a Savior today. I will need a Savior when I walk out this door this morning, and I will need a Savior until the day I meet my Savior. It's not a once done deal. We need a savior every day. But if you don't believe in sin anymore, then chances are you don't really need a savior. To save you from what? Now again, look at what John writes in 1 John 1.8. Again, he's not just writing randomly here. He's, he's, trying to, to, he's trying to nail down some specific things here. He says, if we claim we have no sin, and you just know he's talking to the Gnostics here. He's trying to get the church to understand what they're teaching and believing. And he's saying, listen, I walked, I talked, I know Jesus. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and so he's just, what he's saying to these people is what Jesus would have said to them if he were writing this. Jesus is writing this through John. And he said, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But this is a great but, wonderful but. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing his word has no place in our hearts. Again, this just gives you some perspective. It gives you a context of what John is dealing with here in the culture of that time, in the church of that time, um, and that moment in history. And it really can serve as, again, a great reminder to us there are always, always going to be false prophets in the churches. There's always gonna be false prophets on the radio, on the television, on the internet. Anywhere you go, there's always going to be the potential for false prophets and false teaching. It's always gonna try to infiltrate the church. And it's just important to remember, it's nothing new. It's been with us since the beginning of history. It'll be with us until Jesus comes again. That's why we have the word it's why we have the Holy Spirit. Part of the job of the Holy Spirit is to lead you into all truth. 
So we've got the word, we have the Holy Spirit, I believe we have the creeds in part, again, to go back. I, I always you know, think about what did the early church fathers teach? What did they believe on this? Not that they were always right, but again, to go back and to say, what is, what is our spiritual history? And to try to preserve that to the best so that we can take what we have and hand it off to the next generation. So we're going to pick up with uh, second with First uh, John chapter two uh, next time. So we just encourage you uh, read that. And we're just going to spend some time again talking about that because John has just some wonderful, very very encouraging words uh, in that First John letter. Uh, we're going to get to that. We're going to kind of unpack that uh, and hopefully again really begin to understand and appreciate and experience uh, all that John had. I love that one uh, that one part in there where he talked about we are right these things to you so that your joy may be full. All this was written so that your joy, my joy, could be completely full. How many of you want full joy this morning? Yeah, we all do. And, and, and it's here, and we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna see that, and we're gonna discover that, we're gonna experience that, and we're just gonna walk in that um, together this morning. So Father, we just again thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that again, these things were written for our instruction. These things were written to teach us what is right, to teach us what is truth, to be able to follow you. And so, Father, this morning, we just pray, Lord, that you'll continue to teach us, to train us through your word. Father, I, I pray just for an increase in the ability to hear the Holy Spirit, that God, you would just take that volume dial and God, you would just turn it up louder and louder, God. That we can hear you. And Father, when we can hear you, we can follow you. And we can be obedient. And so Father, we just thank you that in that obedience, Lord, it's one of the ways that we demonstrate our love by just following your commands. It's one of the ways that we experience joy in just doing what Jesus did, saying what Jesus said. So Father, this morning we just pray as we're in your word, Father, again, that there would just come this indescribable, this, this boundless joy, this sense of blessedness of what you're saying to us through your word. And again, Father, we just thank you for your power, your presence here this morning. We ask, Father, that as we go forth from this place this morning, that as we gather together downstairs to just, again, enjoy the food and the fellowship, Father, we pray that you'll bless the food that we're about to receive to our bodies. We pray, Father, that you'll use that to bless, strengthen, and nourish us. And Father, I pray that you'll bless our fellowship, that you'll help us to grow stronger in unity, that you'll help us to grow stronger in oneness that comes from you. Again, we just thank you for this opportunity of fellowship. We again thank you for this time of worship and the word, Father. We pray you'll use it, again, to just bless us, to, to grow us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And again, we thank you for all of this. And all of God's people said, amen. All right. You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org.